so many of our intuitions are wrong. If you live in a warmer place, the relationship from cold to mortality was stronger. 10% of people in Athens wore warm beanies when it was seven degrees outside, whereas three quarters of people did in Finland. If you went in not knowing anything, you'd just think, okay, the colder it is outside, the more likely you are to have deaths from cold. And that's not true at all. And yeah, anyone who's lived through a winter in a leaky weatherboard house in Melbourne can relate to that. Hi, I'm Christy. I'm Adam, and you're listening to The Foil Podcast. Where we talk about the risks and opportunities of the data age. What it means for you and what it might mean for us all. Hey, Toby Cumming, welcome to The Foil. Thanks so much for being here. Your journey is very thoroughly in research and data, particularly health research. Phenomenal advances in knowledge in your area are very prolific. 110 publications, 3,500 citations, a significant body of work over your career. Tell us about your personal journey and how you made the shift from your research career into sustainability. Hi, Christy. Hi, Adam. Good to be with you today. My background was in cognition and brain research, and that fascinated me because I think the brain is just endlessly interesting. And when it gets damaged, there's all sorts of things we can learn about not only the damaged brain, but the undamaged brain from looking at what happens uh, to damaged brains. But I got to a point where I'd spent 10 or 12 years doing that and I felt ready for a change. And I'd spent quite a lot of time in my personal life renovating a house and trying to make good decisions to tread lightly on the world, do a lot of bike riding. And uh, I was running a sustainability group at my kids' primary school to grow fruit trees and get them out in the gardens and talk about waste and better recycling at school. We had a great compost program at school, a local cafe giving us their coffee grounds and kids taking their fruit waste out to the compost bins every day. And so that that was satisfying, but I felt I could do more professionally. I thought Australia was doing a very poor job of responding to the the biggest challenge of our time, as in global warming. And I felt like I might have some professional skills that I could apply to it. So yeah, I came to a realization that I should be looking for jobs that that worked with my research skills, but that were directed towards trying to do something more about our climate challenge. Yeah, so cool. And uh, we'll get into, I want to come back to the the climate challenge and your work with Sustainability Victoria, but definitely want to dig more into your first line of research, all about cognition and and the the ways in which brains operate and uh, what we can learn from healthy and damaged brains. What does it look like to study cognition? Um, like what is cognition and, and how are you going about studying it? So cognition is basically how we think. And, and a lot of that is what sets humans apart, which I, I find fascinating. I, I studied psychology originally as an undergraduate at La Trobe. I, I really got into research in fourth year when we had a an honours project that was basically ours and I got all my friends and family to come in and was doing a language uh, experiment on them. And then when I got to the UK to do my PhD, I, I, I worked mainly with a very, um, very rare subgroup of dementia patients called semantic dementia, which, you know, we had probably the biggest database of semantic dementia patients in the world at that time uh, in Cambridge, and it was only about 20 people. 
and quite heartbreaking too, because these people tend to be younger than your standard, say, Alzheimer's dementia patient. And they, uh, they also generally have insight into their condition. Uh, and they, they, it's called semantic dementia because they lose the ability to understand concepts and uh, meaning in things. And so language is one of the first things that you notice going. But they realize that they're not what they used to be. And so it's sort of like having a word on the tip of your tongue all the time, but not being able to find it. So um, I, I, w- I was looking at word recognition and reading in these patients uh, and trying to understand how a normal brain does word recognition and reading by looking at these dementia patients that had serious atrophy, so, you know, serious volume loss, particularly the temporal lobe sort of in, if you imagine going in from your ears, these, these parts of your brain. Uh, and then, so I came back to Australia and started work at the Flory and moved a little bit from the dementia field into stroke and, and strokes. If anything, it's, it's a more interesting, you get more interesting cognitive outcomes from a research perspective to look at. Again, it can be pretty heartbreaking when people start to lose the, the things that they take for granted, small memory things, paying attention to things. And this is the thing about cognition. It's, it's multidimensional. There's attentional aspects, there's memory aspects, there's language aspects, all that rely on each other. And when you lose part of one, it can affect the whole system, but, but stroke doesn't really specify one part of the brain or the other, which was a bit different to semantic dementia. When you get a blockage or a bleed and blood vessels in your brain, it can happen anywhere. And depending on where it happens and how big it is, that can determine the sort of cognitive and mood effects that you see. So yeah, I spent quite a lot of time running clinical trials, designing research experiments, mostly out of the Austin, uh, a big teaching hospital here in Melbourne. Um, with stroke patients early after their stroke and trying to, trying to work to understand how we could get better rehabilitation outcomes for them, but also not forget that sometimes these, these effects, these cognitive effects, changes to their thinking, changes to their mood are pretty hidden. They're much harder to see than someone who's lost function in their, in one side of their body physically. Uh, cause I think that's a really important aspect of their lives that we need to consider. Yeah, wow. And and we use some pretty incredible technology to to study these things. Well, you know, we might use some technology, we might use some um, you know, some face-to-face interaction and 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 those sorts of things as well. How what what kinds of technology are we using to, you know, to to help study your patients and um yeah, like what what kind of data were you getting back and and using for that? So one of the just quantum leaps in brain research in the last 10 or 20 years has been the ability to image the brain using MRI, magnetic resonance imaging. So getting people in one of those big tunnel scanners that you're probably familiar with uh, to tell us about what's going on in the brain uh, live, you know, in real patients. A lot of these things could only happen at autopsy before. If you wanted to know what an, an Alzheimer's brain looked like and how much you know, the average human brain is about one and a half kilos. Some people at the end of their Alzheimer's journey, their brains only weighed a kilo. So they've lost, you know, a third of their actual volume of brain. It's withered away. And often we relied on autopsy to look at the details of this. But with such high resolution scanning now, you can do that live and track it over time. So actually one of the, one of the projects that I worked on 
big longitudinal project brought stroke and dementia together. So we were interested to know whether having a stroke, so this vascular problem, you say you get a blockage in one of your blood vessels in your brain, the brain cells around that start to die because they're not getting oxygen from the, from the blood vessel. But we wondered whether that also triggered these sort of neurodegenerative effects that you see in dementia. Is there a cascade that leads? Because we know stroke and dementia are related. If you look at just the bare numbers, are you more likely to have dementia if you have strokes in your history? But we wanted to look at what the actual mechanism might be. So we used scanning. We got a whole cohort of stroke patients, more than 100 stroke patients, and scanned them repeatedly and gave them lots of cognitive tests over three and then five years. We extended it to look at, are they losing brain volume like a dementia patient loses brain volume? And we could do that because of the imaging potential that wouldn't have been there 20 years ago. So yeah, that that absolutely has revolutionized the field of, um, of stroke and dementia, the imaging capacity. Yeah. And so the, the link between stroke and dementia. So if I understand correctly, a stroke, and you mentioned it's a blockage in the brain, cuts off the supply of blood to that part of the brain, damages those neurons. Would that, so firstly, would that, does that suggest that it's the neurons that are encoding that information in the brain? And I suppose where, where I want to ask it, where I want to ask you about next is we have these, you know, these new technologies in the form of neural networks that we use to as, as like a, a, a model architecture. Um, is that really how the brain stores information? And how good is the analogy, if you like, of a neural network in, you know, in the data science world um, to the way that the information is encoded in the brain? Yeah, we love to draw these analogies, don't we? Uh, but in this, in this case, it, it's a reasonable one. So there's particularly among the white matter tracts in the brain, um, there's, there's crossing fibers everywhere. It is like a network. And this is what we try in the stroke field. This is what we try and uh, leverage in stroke recovery. You might've pruned a few of those connections when you lost your blood supply to a certain part of that network. And you need to learn to be able to make your, um, make your connections along other parts of that network. And that, that's a lot about how the brain is plastic and how people recover is training or recovery methods that take advantage of the fact that yes, the brain is a network. And we know that things like learning an instrument, learning another language, strengthen a whole range of pathways in that network so that when you do lose some of them, you're more equipped to uh, use other parts of the network. And I, I was also particularly interested in how exercise and physical activity might boost that uh, sort of potential for recovery. If you're if you're fitter beforehand, what that what does that mean for your network and your recovery? So interesting, Toby. And I smiled when I read this about you, uh, and that is that you have the rare and probably genetic condition of enjoying statistics. Can you tell us about how you've applied that wonderful quality in? the sustainability world now as you lead the Victorian Healthy Homes Program? Because my understanding is that this work you're doing is groundbreaking in Australia because it's really the first randomised control research study of its kind, and that's pretty rare. Governments are not typically in the business of running randomised control trials. Can you tell us about this work and um, 
what is the question you're really trying to answer? Uh, let me start with stats first. I've got an admission to make. I didn't love stats when I first did it in uh, first Somebody year, made that up about you then. First universe. <laughs> oh, well, I have come round, but um, I don't think anyone, well, very few fall in love with it. Stats is all about probability. So it's a bit of a slippery concept. I can just remember thinking, oh, okay, so what analysis should I use with these data? And the answer from the statistician is always, it depends, yeah. which I think is, <laughs> is frustrating as a, as a first year uni student. That's it. But, I don't agree either. No, every, everyone has their different opinions. But once you start to understand and run your own studies and try to analyze your own data, you do get a feel for it and you get a feel for how powerful it can be to help you understand the world. And I, I've got to admit, um, my dad has written a couple of, he's, he's spent probably the last 10 or 20 years of his career, he was an academic, but he really got into the better teaching of stats and trying to un trying to make people understand it more and also a little bit of a crusade against p-values this idea that if something's below 0.05 then it's significant and if it's above 0.05 then it's not significant that very black and white thinking uh which often isn't very helpful it doesn't tell us much about if you ran the study again, would you be able to replicate the results? It doesn't tell us much about effect size because we know p-values are very dependent on how many people you had in your sample. So, so I have been influenced by my dad, I must admit, uh, <laughs> and, and his books trying to push that argument that we can do much better than just null hypothesis testing in statistics. We can be much more sophisticated and uh, have better understanding of the concepts. So I have come around a little. Uh, but yes, healthy homes. Um, this is one of the big reasons why I moved into sustainability. I thought healthy homes looked like a fascinating uh, study. So delivering a thousand upgrades to houses, but designed as a randomized control trial, depending on when you upgrade them. So half of them were upgrading before winter, half after winter. And we get to look at the differences between the upgraded houses and the yet to be upgraded houses during the cold winter period. Uh, and really that's all based on prior work that had happened in New Zealand, some pretty groundbreaking work from Philippa Howden Chapman in New Zealand. She had a couple of trials that came out in the British Medical Journal in 2007 and 2008, just really putting these simple interventions on the radar, putting insulation in your roof, getting efficient heating and showing that when you did boost temperatures in these houses, even by not very much, by half a degree, let's say from 13 and a half degrees to 14 degrees, you had a really amazing uh, increase in health in the, in the householders and a reduction in people seeking medical treatment, a reduction in sick days off work, et cetera, et cetera. So that, that's really uh, how the Victorian Healthy Homes program was, was prompted. We wanted to get some data that looked at those questions in Victoria because we know, even though people you know, think Victoria is a fairly temperate climate, it's cold for three or four years, three or four months of winter. Uh, and, and we wanted to know whether we could do these simple interventions and improve people's health as a result. That's amazing. How many, so what, what kind of like macro scale impacts do we think that cold has on populations? Um, you know, in Australia, perhaps there was study in New Zealand or around the world. Do you know like what those sort of like, like how big of an impact are we talking about here? Yeah, that's, that's a, it's a great question. Uh, 
We've the first the first thing to say is we've known for a long time. So back to the eighteen fifties, I saw a you know talk that was given to the Royal Society in London, and someone had noticed when they looked at the death records that these numbers were up in winter, consistently up in the colder seasons. And so people have known for a long time that there's higher death rates where, when it's cold. Uh, and there was some pretty um, crazy theories bandied around early on about why that might be. Like, oh, well, it's because people have to get out and shovel snow because when it's cold and so they hurt themselves. You know, this is Northern Hemisphere. And, and actually a few of those the crazier theories died down. And what we're left with now, it seems to be a respiratory disease uh, is up when it's cold and also cardiovascular disease. And the the primary driver is blood pressure, which goes back to my stroke work, I guess. Uh, when you have cold exposure over a whole population, it doesn't change people's blood pressure that much. Maybe only, you know, two or three millimetres of mercury on average. But when, I mean, the whole population's exposed to cold. So when at, at, a, at a public health level, when you boost a risk factor like blood pressure, even a little bit across the population, then you'll notice it in death rates. So that's that's really the underlying driver is the the what happens to blood vessels when it's cold, the increase in blood pressure and the knock-on effects to, yeah, cardiovascular respiratory diseases. Yeah, and so, you know, very recently we've had We've had the paradoxical advice that being indoors, um, you know, throughout the pandemic, being indoors uh, was something that we were all required to do, but also was quite a, a risky thing to do, in particular where you were in a space which, you know, was full of a lot of other people. I think where you mentioned that cold is driving excess deaths, if I've got that right, is are those deaths, um, is there any like, you know, differentiation but well why are they dying is this deaths excess deaths for any reason like does that include people who might have picked up colds and flus and things like that and just been overly susceptible to those no they're generally uh the way xx excess deaths from cold is measured is trying to tease out those other things so that you really isolate the effects of temperature um one of the reasons why i think data is so important is that so many of our intuitions are wrong and uh, one, of the, one of the studies that I talk about that really was foundational for healthy homes, even for the New Zealand stuff, was a Eurowinter group study that came out in The Lancet in 1997. And they compared different areas in Europe and showed that actually mortality due to cold was much stronger in places like Athens, next to the Mediterranean that we think of as warm, than it was in places like Finland, sort of further up towards the Arctic Circle that we think of as cold. And they showed that actually mortality rates were related to warmer winter temperatures outside. So if you live in a warmer place, the relationship from cold to mortality was stronger. And and when they dug into that, when they looked at, okay, if it's seven degrees outside, how warm are these inside temperatures? It was 19 degrees in Athens, but it was 21 and a half degrees in Finland because they had better houses. It was 10% of people in Athens wore warm beanies when it was seven degrees outside, whereas three quarters of people did in Finland. So it's there's behavioral factors, there's housing stock factors, 
But that's totally counterintuitive. If you went in not knowing anything, you'd just think, okay, the colder it is outside, the more likely you are to have um, heart excess deaths from cold. And and that that's not true at all. And I, I think yeah, anyone who's lived in a share house in Melbourne can relate to that. Everyone thinks it's a decent climate, but if you've lived through a winter in a leaky weatherboard house, you know that it's it's not like that at all. And Athens seems to have that same issue. Yeah, it's absolutely freezing in Melbourne if you're living in a place that's not well heated. And this is what you're trying to solve, isn't it? Particularly in low-income communities, this focus for Victorian healthy homes is about ensuring there's also equity uh, and people who perhaps could not afford to have insulated homes or to revamp or, you know, heat their homes adequately. The trial is about, to my understanding, working out whether or not there are better health outcomes for people who might be vulnerable in these communities. Can you talk a bit about how you've designed the trial and what you're aiming to learn from it? Absolutely. That's our target population. To be eligible to participate in healthy homes, you need to be low income and you need to have a chronic uh, health or social care need. So we are targeting vulnerable populations. And and chiefly, that's because, I mean, it's it's not these people's fault that they live in substandard housing. You know, they, did, they didn't build the house they're living in. And to give you a bit of an idea of the Victorian situation anyway, so we've got about two and a half million houses in Victoria, standalone houses. Uh, prior to 1991, there were no standards or regulations about how those houses needed to be built. And more than half of those two and a half million houses, about 1.3 million, were built before 1991. So we've got you know, more than half of our housing stock doesn't, didn't need to f- fit any regulations or live up to any standards. And we know if, if you, there's, a, there's a rating scale called NATHERS, which looks at the energy efficiency of houses. And the minimum standard now for a new build is six stars for NATHERS. You can't build to below that because we do have regulations now, which is great. Uh, and there's a current debate about the National Construction Code and whether they're going to boost that to seven stars, which I think is a great idea. But let's think about the older houses for a second, those pre-1991s, the ones that are in healthy homes. The average star rating on that is of those, 1.6 stars. Wow, so, that is a massive gap, huge. So we've got just so far to go in retrofitting these old, leaky, cold energy inefficient houses uh, to boost them to anything like what we think is a reasonable level of comfort and health for people to be living in. And and that's, that, as you say, I, I think middle income earners and higher income earners, maybe we can offer a little bit of subsidy or try and give them more information on how to do this to their houses. But the lower income earners, I mean, they, they just don't have the money available or, or even the, you know, the time to think about these things, we, we need to help them out because it's really, this is a structural issue in society that we've got this, the housing stock that we've got. And I, it's absolutely not their fault that that's what they have to live in. They bear the brunt of having to pay these massive bills every winter to heat their poor houses. Uh, so I, I think, yes, there is an equity issue and we've got to do more to... Um, to improve the houses. So what kind of data are you collecting through the trial and how are you collecting it? 
I guess the conversation we were just having leads into if you run a study like this, you have to collect a whole range of data because, and let me give you an example. If you, if you want to show that you can put insulation in the house, you can do some draft sealing, you can give someone an efficient heating option, and you want to show that warm temperatures is better for their health. We know that a house that's not built very well and doesn't have those upgrades, they can still make their house warm. They just crank the heater for a bit longer, but that will come through in their energy use. So you've got to measure their energy use and you've got to measure their housing shell, the efficiency of their household so that you know what that is. And you have to measure energy use because that's one of the variables and you have to measure indoor temperature. Someone could not pay anything during winter and have a cold house and you'd never know unless you measured the temperature of that house. You'd know it was a bad shell because you're measuring that and then you need to measure their health as well. And so you have to, one of the difficulties and one of the things that I think Healthy Homes does really well is you need a very comprehensive suite of data collection. And so our approach to that has been do surveys with the participants before and after winter. So we get their self-report and their quality of life scales. All of that uh, survey data comes before winter and after winter. So we can compare across the winter period, but there's a huge range of objective uh, and linked data that we're getting to from energy providers. We have very comprehensive data on how much gas and electricity these households are using across the whole winter period. And we're getting very uh, comprehensive health data too, in terms of, you know, PBS prescriptions that people are filling, uh, Medicare, how much, how many times they're showing up to hospital, how many times they're visiting their GPs. That's all through, you know, Services Australia linked data that we can access. And, and the advantage of doing that is that a lot of that data exists before and after our winter period that we care about. So we can go back and look at, okay, well, what was the health use like in the year before and what's the health use like in the year or two after? So yeah, they're, they're the types of um, data we're collecting as well as actually, I, I forgot to mention the, the primary outcome is whether we can actually make these houses warmer. So we have data loggers that we put on the wall in these houses and that, that collects temperature and humidity data every half hour for the winter period. So we, we're digging very deep into a whole range of different data sources. Yeah, wow. And so you're, if, I'm, if I'm understanding it right, you've got, you've got a whole bunch of households um, and you've found, you know, you're, you're in particular reaching out to low-income households, households with the, who have people with chronic health conditions and saying, we're going to retrofit your house. Um, some of them you're saying we're going to do that before winter and some after winter. So what kind of, how do you, how do you overcome the ethical barrier there of saying, you know, some of these households, you know, they're not going to get it until after winter. Um, you know, what, what kind of considerations do, do you guys, were necessary to, to get to that point? Yeah, you've hit upon the heart of why it's sometimes quite tricky to have a control group in a randomized control trial. Uh, and there are ethical considerations. And so when I worked in um, brain research, uh, these were particularly strong. If, if you're trialing an intervention, there needs to be rules within the trial that will come to a firm stop if your intervention group start, and this is why you have data safety um, committees, so that while you're still 
blinded who's in the intervention and control group, your data committee can say to you, look, we've noticed six months into this trial that your intervention group are having bad outcomes. You need to stop the trial because we think it's harmful. Or alternatively, that what you really wish for, and some of my colleagues actually had this in one of their um, clot retrieval trials in stroke, the data committee came to them and say, look, your, your results are so amazing in the intervention group it is unethical to keep denying the control group this treatment. So you need to stop the trial and give it to everyone, which is, you know, that's the dream. So in our, in our setting, uh, we we wanted to deliver a thousand upgrades. I mean, we are a government agency. This We, we committed to uh, upgrading these households of Victorians, and that's an important thing that we're going to meet. Um, and so it wasn't practical for us to give 500 upgrades and the control group, nothing. Uh, so the trial design was all around, okay, well, how are we going to do this then? We'll give some before winter and then some after winter. And it's, yes, you could say you are luckier, although we don't know the results yet. We don't know what sort of effects we're going to have, but you could say you're luckier to get one less winter if you end up in the intervention group. But many of these houses have been living in their current place for 20 winters already. So I don't think it's too much of an ethical stretch to say, we're going to give you one more uh, winter in your current house and then we'll give you the upgrade. But yeah, absolutely. That's an issue we have to consider. And you know, when we when we talk to our ethics uh, committee and get the study approved, that was something that was on their radar, definitely. Wow. So are they, are they watching the data streams then and, and um, waiting to, to see how it goes? Would you expect a call at some point to say, you know, your households with this intervention, the, the health impacts are just so incredible um, and they're not spending a single cent on their energy. Um, we need to roll this out immediately, not a second to waste. Uh, I'd love to think that that was a possibility, but I haven't got the call yet. <laughs> <laughs> the potential health outcomes as well as the energy outcomes are really compelling. Maybe not as compelling as the New Zealand results, could you talk a little bit about what happened in New Zealand and the policy changes that resulted there and what you're expecting might happen here in Australia or Victoria? I'll give you a little bit of background because actually the first time I came across the news, this New Zealand work, their um, healthy homes work, was when I was a stroke researcher. I was there, I think, in 2011 or 2012 uh, for a stroke conference, but there were public health people there and someone was talking about this project in very cold houses in New Zealand and they made a new scale to detect, um, to, to handle the, the scope of mould that they were seeing on walls. They actually had to get rid of the old assessment scales because it was, it maxed out at the size of, you know, a dinner plate or something and they were seeing half of the wall full of mould. And it was just a very confronting talk, I must admit. Like it was the most memorable thing for me from that conference. And it was interesting for me to dig into their results and just show, just look at how how powerful that was. So, the, and their temperatures were very cold. Their winter temperatures were around an average of thirteen degrees in that first study, and they managed to boost them to you know about fourteen degrees, which is still pretty cold. But there was a massive difference in people's experience of the house. They asked the question: Is your house colder than you want it most or all of the time? 
And before the intervention, about 400 out of 500 people said, yes, it was. And after the intervention, only about 100 of 500 said it was. So even small measures, small gains in temperature can really change people's experience of the house and their health outcomes were super impressive. So yeah, they, they're upgraded houses with the insulation um, used about 80% of the energy of the non-upgraded houses. So it did reduce energy slightly, not not enormously, slightly, but when they did their cost benefit analysis, they found for every dollar they spent upgrading houses, they saved $4 in the health budget. So, and that of all those benefits they found, 99% health related. So yes, they saved a little bit of energy, but the vast majority of their benefit was health benefit. And, and we may not, I mean, as I said, these temperatures were cold. Uh, New Zealand, that environment is colder. Uh, and, and this is why it's important to get some Australian specific data in Victoria. Our temperatures aren't looking that cold. Our temperatures might be more like 16 or 17 than 13 or 14, which at one level is good because we won't have the very serious health effects that New Zealand was seeing. But yeah, at, at another level makes me think our results might not be quite so compelling as the as the New Zealand results because we've got a little bit less to gain. We're not starting from such a terrible and cold climate, terrible position and cold climate. What are the policy changes that you anticipate? I think the really impressive thing about the New Zealand work was how directly that translated to policy changes. So on the back of Howden Chapman's finding, uh, there was a program called Warm Up New Zealand Essentially, they delivered, again, very simple, just some subsidies for insulation. So they weren't paying for it all, just some small, relatively small, $1,000 subsidies for insulation. And if you were low income, you could also get access to a subsidy for um, efficient heating. And they ended up doing about 250,000 uh, houses under that program. And that was, it came to about $350 million I think, all on the basis of this data that Howden Chapman had provided to say, look, this is something we should be spending money on because it's a you're going to find it hard to find a better investment in people's health you know, than these simple interventions that we can do to, do to houses. So the direct relationship between those, the data that she produced and those research findings to policy change that made New Zealanders healthier and, and, and it's had wide-ranging effects. There are other things like home loan programs from banks that are available to people on the basis of whether your house is Green Star. There's, renting is a tricky thing because there's split incentives. You know, do you, the land owns the house. If you improve it with an upgrade, they get the benefit, but also the renter gets the benefit because they're paying less in bills. And so New Zealand in 2019 brought in more rigorous uh, standards for rental properties where you had to uh, you had to have ceiling and underfloor insulation and a number of other things. You had to have a heater of a particular standard of efficiency. Uh, and I think for rental properties, that's a pretty good way to go rather than trying to deal with the split incentive via subsidies to get these upgrades done. So yeah, a whole ecosystem of more energy efficient and healthier housing has happened in New Zealand. And I think you can basically sheet all that home to the research that was done. And so that's fascinating, isn't it? Because it's so simple. It seems so simple, but without the, um, the research and the 
data to demonstrate the value, you wouldn't get those you know, improvements in people's lives, of course, but also those savings out of the health system, uh, which, is, which is fascinating. And so much of what we're interested in is how do you encourage data-driven decision-making in policy and this is a fantastic example of it. What are you imagining might happen in Victoria as a result? Well, I've really started to turn my mind to this. So I still don't know what the results from Healthy Homes will be. Yeah, as you say, that'll be early next year. Uh, we'll, we will know. I'm hoping things look positive. And if they are, what I've started to turn my mind to is how are we going to scale this up? You know, it's great to upgrade a thousand homes, but that's a drop in the ocean when you've got one and a half million just in Victoria that need to be upgraded. So how do we scale this up to be working on that sort of statewide or even national wide uh, level? And it's, it's the data as, as you say. So what Healthy Homes has to offer is not those thousand upgrades that are really a drop in the ocean. It's the data that we build, let's say a revolving finance model on. Let's think about green bonds or social impact bonds where you just go and spend the money. And, and there's investors definitely interested in this. Uh, you spend the money and at the other end, you just say to the government, look, we need to keep this fund revolving because by spending this money and doing these upgrades, here's how much we've saved you. Modelled from our original data results, here's how much we've saved your health budget. So you need to keep this fund revolving. So next year, it's not like there's a pot of money that we use to do one project. We just have, let's say, a $50 million fund that we do housing upgrades with. We demonstrate the benefits of that and it just keeps rolling on is what I'd really like to see. Terrific example of a data-driven product in um, the public policy arena. Isn't it? Yeah, and and that that those models only work if you have the baseline evidence, if you have the data in the first place, because no one's just going to give you money without evidence that they're getting a benefit from it. Uh, so it's a really important first step in the chain. And if I've understood what you were saying earlier correctly about the relationship between minimum uh, winter temperature and excess deaths, if that could be like, you know, the blunt instrument that, that tells you how bad the problem is in a, in a region, then does that suggest that there's actually a whole bunch of opportunity for the same kind of interventions, you know, in northern, more temperate climates, parts of Australia as well? Have you got a view on, um, you know, what, what kind of things might be done, you know, in Queensland or the Northern Territory, um, you know, that might be along the similar lines? It's part of the reason why this relationship between temperature and health is tricky is that is it is so regionally specific, uh, and I haven't done a lot of thinking about what that means for you know Northern Territory or Queensland or even Mildura, which has a completely different climate to Melbourne. Um, and with climate change, there are very serious health impacts with people being too hot. Healthy homes is very much targeted around uh, people being too cold in winter. And that's mostly what I've done my thinking around. Like, for example, if you if you take Victoria and all the houses in Victoria and provide no heating, uh, 
we know that 65% of the time, so across the year, 65% of the year, they'll be sitting at under 18 degrees. And the WHO says under 18 degrees can be harmful for health. Like we need to get at least 18 degrees to protect your health. Uh, and so that's, I mean, that's Victoria's issue. We, we do have, a, have an issue with our houses being too cold for a lot of the year. We're going to need heating even for quite a while until climate change really kicks in, sadly, which is maybe moderating the problem slightly. But And that feeds into other issues around climate change. We, Victoria has a historical reliance on gas, much greater than any other state to heat our houses because Bass Strait was just there and it was easy and it was cheap. We now know that gas just has too many emissions. We're going to need to electrify and fast in the next 10 years. So how do we do that, making sure that we can make homes comfortable, healthy, and electrified. Uh, and, and that's going to be the really next big challenge as we're upgrading these houses. It's not, a, it's not a situation where we're going to put more gas heaters in. We have to be going electric as part of this solution. So beyond upgrading homes, keeping warm seems like the public health issue of our time. You know, like the impact seems to be absolutely enormous. What other initiatives can you would you recommend people think about you know in their own homes in their own day-to-day you know how do, how do you encourage people to think about keeping warm as a as a primary health kind of focus it's, it's been a battle and i mean i didn't think about it much until i came to healthy homes i have to admit but when people think about if ever you ask people about health and housing often what they think of is uh, indoor air quality and maybe even more now with COVID people think about uh, what they're breathing in in their house and maybe you know there's they have some concerns over their gas cooktop whether that's uh, harming their health at all but people tend not to think about um, being too cold in winter as a as the number one thing when they think how could my house be contributing to my health but Absolutely, it does. Uh, one of the things, one of the broader things I think a lot about uh, is transport too. We, our, because it's part of our residential life, but it's also part of the community. Uh, and when we think about how we can reduce our footprint and reduce our emissions, transport is a huge one uh, for um, sort of what we can do as individuals. And I guess it gets back to the electrify uh, point at the at the moment. If you imagine your, your daily life, you've got your car in the driveway that you fill up with petrol. You've got your house, which if you're in Victoria is predominantly, probably you're getting your space heating of the spaces in your house and your water heating from gas. So, so you've got to get, you've got petrol in your car that you fill up at the service station. You've got gas coming in to do your house and water heating. And then you've got electricity for everything else. Like how complex and inefficient is a system where we're having three fuels all coming in from sort of different points? Let's imagine for a second you've got your EV electric vehicle in your in your driveway that's charging off your solar. You've got your induction cooktop that doesn't have any gas fumes to, to worry about health. It's just there. It's super efficient. Uh, you've got a hot water heat pump to do your hot water and you've got split systems to heat your house. It's all electric. You've gone from three fuels to one fuel. Uh, it's all free because the sun's just smashing into your solar panels on your roof. 
uh, you, you don't really need a battery because you've got your electric vehicle to use as a battery to fill up and to charge back to your house. It's like there are so many efficiency gains and health and comfort gains to be to be got from that scenario. Uh, it's almost like the reduction to pretty much zero emissions is a added side benefit, but also very important. Uh, so yeah, that's the sort of that's the sort of thing I'd be encouraging people to think about: how to electrify to make their homes warmer, more comfortable, better for the world. When you talk about it like that, it seems like such a simple straight line. And I don't mean to say it's simple. I mean, it's Victorian has a gas substitution roadmap. At the moment, there's some pretty strong vested interests. Uh, if you, you may have noticed in the fossil fuel industry, trying to keep gas on the table. Uh, but I don't see any alternative. We've got to move away from it. And the efficiency gains and the economic gains are just enormous and we just can't be we can't be scared to change it's got to be disrupted well i do mean that i mean i do mean it is a simple choice isn't it? it's a consumer choice and i think in addition to the economic games it's there's great gains for society as well uh, which is important for us to consider as as you're rolling this out and i, I i'm just curious one of the little triggers in new zealand that's being used that i read about is that they've got this cute little famous data-driven smart sheep helping people recognise in the home when it's too cold or when it's too hot um, and the face turns blue uh, if your house gets too cold, below 18 degrees and if it's too humid, the horns on the ram straighten right up. So my question to you, Toby, are we going to have like a jumping kangaroo or what? <laughs> uh, no no plans for that. That it, it is a brilliant piece of communication, the New Zealand cheap, because it addresses one of the main issues with upgrading houses for residential, of upgrading houses for energy efficiency, and that is most of it's hidden. So you can have the best insulation in the world and no one will ever see it because it's just up in your roof. Uh, you can have great draft stopping around all your windows and doors and no one notices that stuff. Uh, yeah, you can have a shiny new Tesla in your driveway and people will notice, but the home upgrade stuff isn't very visible. And the when you're too cold, there's not necessarily any you know, visual cue to that. So what they did with the sheep is just, yeah, okay, no one's probably going to check a thermometer, but if you've got a sheep that visually tells you when it's getting a bit cold and too humid in your house, that will trigger you to go, all right, we need to change something here. So that's brilliant. I love it. It's fantastic, Toby. Thank you so much for that. I understand you do have a book out as well. Well, yeah. So we talked about my cognitive stroke dementia background and now I'm much more in the sustainability field. But uh, this was a passion project, really. I, I got interested in a golf architect, um, golf course architect in Australia who was back in the started in the 1920s really and finished in the 1960s and his name is Vern Morecambe and he 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 ended up designing or remodeling about 90 courses in southeastern Australia and my partner would tell you that my interest in that was just driven by wanting to go and play these courses which may have had some truth to it there was a golden age of golf course architecture back in the 1920s and 30s and probably the best architect of all, all time came to Australia from the UK in 1926 when Vern was just in his mid-20s and they happened to meet 
And so I think, yeah, country Victoria is so lucky to have these Vern Morecambe design courses. He was tapped into the leading philosophy, sort of architectural philosophies of the time. And you can go to these tiny country towns, you know, Haywood, Balmoral, Euroa, uh, Warwick Nabeel, and play really sophisticated golf courses for, you know, $20 because they're tiny little country towns and they've had no money to upgrade them. So they're just the same as they were when Vern laid them out back in the 1950s. So yeah, I wrote a book about it. <laughs> fun. So golf enthusiasts, go and check out Toby's book if you want to learn about all of the amazing golf courses around Australia that you want to go and play. Thanks so much, Toby. We really look forward to hearing the results after February. Good luck with the rest of the program and congratulations on your incredible career and all of your work. Thanks, Christy. Thanks, Adam. Really appreciate it. Well, that's all, folks. Thanks for joining us. We hope you've enjoyed the conversation. This is Christy and Adam on The Foil Podcast. Check us out at www.thefoil.ai and follow us on all the socials. Share this out to anyone you think might be interested in what we and our guests have to say and let them know what we've got coming up. See you next time. Bye now.